It is Jesus-saturated and kingdom-oriented. Um, James does not cite a lot of the Bible, um, but he alludes to almost, uh, almost everything in James alludes to something that Jesus says during his ministry, to a teaching we find in the Gospels as Jesus goes around and teaches his people how to live as his new, um, newly developed, new people of God um, movement. Um, James is the definition of a New Testament letter that is full of Jesus. Um, And one of the things that I want to be as a a pastor and what I want our church to be and what I want us to be as individuals is Jesus-centered. And not Jesus as an idea, okay? Because that's a big distinction. I think there's a lot of churches who would say they're Jesus-centered. I think it's hard to be a church if you don't say you're Jesus-centered. Um, but the Jesus they center on is more of an idea Jesus. Like, it's the idea that he died for our sins. And so we're focused on that Jesus. And, and, and I've always wanted us to be focused on the Jesus, the Jesus who walked around in different villages in Galilee, and who looked people in the eye and said, act this way, and don't act this way, and this is what God wants, and this is what God doesn't want. And the Jesus who resurrected and apparently is still alive today looking down at his people, continuing the Jesus movement, saying, hey, this is what I want, and this is what I don't want. You can be Jesus-centered in the sense that you have this kind of get-out-of-hell-free card and you talk about it a lot, or you can be Jesus-centered in a way where you are committed every day faithfully to following the living Christ, who continues to form a group of people who obey him who call him Lord, who follow him. And it's kingdom-oriented. It's all about advancing God's purposes on earth as a community of believers. And so as we go through the book of James, I'll be pointing this out a lot. A lot of different scholars and authors have made lists of all the things that you find in James and all the different sayings they correspond to in the Gospels. Um, We'll notice those a lot as we go through. At some point, I might give you a couple handouts to help you out um, with that. Um, But what we see is James, without even quoting, and by the way, there was nothing to quote at the time, right? He's the first one doing this. It's just full of Jesus talk. He's saturated in the life and the thought of Jesus. And so when he writes this letter to Christians, trying to instruct them on how to be Jesus followers, it's just overflowing um, with the things that Jesus said and taught and desired, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus' big kind of major sermon, and then the counterpart of it in Luke, the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6. And so if you would, every good journey begins with one step. And so James, verse 1, we'll begin reading. James 1, 1 says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. You'll notice if you were to compare this to a Pauline letter or other letters we get in the New Testament, it's very short. We get the author and we get the recipients. The author, he claims here, is to be James. Okay, There are two options for who this James is. Um, the, the One option is that this is James, part of the 12 disciples who followed Jesus around during this earthly ministry. The brother of John, one of the sons of Zebedee, uh, if you'll remember. Jesus had this inner three, Peter, James, and John. This could necessarily be that James. John wrote books of the Bible. Peter wrote books of the Bible. This could be James. There's a lot of good reasons for thinking that's not who this James is. 
one of which is that, that James was killed very quickly. And in history, he has no imprint in Christian history in these early few decades. He seems to disappear as if the records about him being killed were true. The other option about who this James is, is someone we call James the Just, which is a sweet nickname. I get alfalfa, uh, I get um, Pastor Clammy Hands, uh, I get MC Cheddar Cheese. Um, James gets James the Just, and, and this is a nickname for Jesus' half-brother. Um, Jesus had lots of siblings. We know at least of five, six, seven of them. And they're all kind of half-siblings because of the virgin birth thing, if you do the biology there, okay? Um, this is Jesus' brother, but kind of half-brother, okay? And, and here's what we know about James. Um, historically, he is the leader of the early church. He is the leader of Jerusalem, which is the city for the Jewish people. Um, this is where the whole world kind of centered around. And if you read through Paul's letters, if you read through Luke's account of early Christian history, if you even read ancient secular historians like Eusebius, you'll find that James is the most important early Christian figure. Um, I'm not a Catholic, and many of the scholars that I'm reading are not Catholics. A couple of them are, but I appreciate Catholics and, and Catholic scholarship. But one of the the authors I was reading said, look, I'm not a Catholic. All I'm saying is if you wanted to pick the most important leader of the early church, it wouldn't be Peter as the first pope. It would be James, James the Just. In fact, um, in historical records, Peter um, gets in a little bit of trouble with Paul. If you'll remember in Galatians, they come together and then some men from James come, and Peter starts acting in an unchristlike way. Now, most of us believe those men aren't accurately representing James, who seems like a pretty nice, nice guy, and who seems like he gets it. But the fact that someone claiming to be from James from Jerusalem came, and Peter, who, mind you, was a loud mouth and had some big muscles, so he thought, put his tail between his legs and walked away from Paul— shows you how much clout James the Just had. When Messianic movements, when, often when they died, um, if they were picked up again, they were often picked up by a brother or a sibling. Um, what's interesting about the Jesus movement is that's exactly what happens. A sibling kind of takes control of the movement, but he does not then claim to be the Messiah. He claims to be a follower of his brother who was the Messiah. Now, I don't know if you have siblings or not, I do, and it's definitive proof that they are not deity, that they were not sent by God to do anything other than annoy people, um, that they have no special role to play in the kingdom, um, that if they call themselves the Messiah, it just gives you an actual good reason to hurt them, um, that you could defend, maybe in court, maybe not. Um, we know in the Gospels, James the Just does not follow Jesus during his earthly ministry. Again, makes sense. It's his brother. Um, we know on multiple occasions, Jesus and his family came to him to try to take him away because he was crazy. It's not hard to imagine that James the Just is here with them. But something happens after Jesus is crucified. You remember when Jesus is crucified, um, John, the disciple, is at the cross, as well as Jesus' mother. James not to be found. 
And Jesus does what? He says, John, take care of my mom. Presumably because not even his own brother's there for Jesus to say, hey, will you take care of my mother when I'm gone? When James talks about widows later on in his book, he might have in mind his mom, Mary, who seems to be a widow in the Gospels. Joseph's not mentioned. It's just Mary and Jesus and their siblings. This is James, the brother of Jesus. Something happens between the time Jesus is crucified and the time James writes this letter that makes James not only a believer, but also a leader. And it's most likely the resurrection. That's a hard thing to argue with. It's a hard thing to disprove. The resurrection to James proves to him that he is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King who has come to make all things right and all things new in the world. Now, James calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, servant, slave. The Greek word there is doulos. This, though, is probably not too of a humble title to us, right? That sounds pretty, pretty humble. I'm Mike Skinner. I'm a servant of God. Um, what James is doing, though, actually, is he's putting himself in line with a long list of people who you should listen to. Moses was a servant of God. Abraham was a servant of God. Isaiah was a servant of God. Elijah was a servant of God. John the Baptist was a servant of God. And now James, writing to various people, puts himself in those same shoes. James has the authority to make some noise in the Christian world. And as he writes this letter, pleading with whomever he's writing with, He's writing with that authority, saying, listen to me and continue this Jesus movement the way that I have received it, the way that I witnessed it, and the way that I've now come to believe in it and walk in it. Um, He called himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the reasons James has been dissed on in history has been because it doesn't seem to have a whole lot of theology in it. Um, When you read Paul's letters, you get this kind of advanced theology about how we're saved, the atoning work of the cross, and these advanced theories about what might or might not happen in the future. James has very little of that. Um, Some have said, in fact, James has no, like, study of Jesus. He only mentions Jesus a handful of times. Some have argued if you took Jesus out of James, it could just be a Jewish letter. There's nothing that... Christian about the book of James. Again, I'd beg to differ, first of all, because James is pretty much Jesus' teachings repeated, and because you can't take Jesus out of the few places where he's mentioned in the book of James. James very much is writing on behalf of and for whom he considers the Lord, Jesus, the Messiah. And there's times in James where this word Lord, which in the Greek would have been a translation of how the Jewish people used the name for their God, Yahweh. And just like in Paul and other letters, there's going to be times where we can't tell whether when James uses the word Lord, if he's talking about God the Father, or if he's talking about Jesus. Now, he might not have advanced Trinitarian concepts like we do, but the reason we have ideas like the Trinity, like Jesus is God, is because... Even in 40 AD, James has to write in such a way where their identity is a little blurred. The God 
our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the author, James, the just. He dies in 62 AD, a martyr. There are different accounts of how he dies. Um, One is that he's thrown from the Temple Mount uh, after they take him up to the Temple Mount to try to get him to tell people to stop following Jesus. He gets up there, surprise, gives a Christian message, and then they climb up and push him down. Um, even in that story, he doesn't necessarily die, and so they, they come down and, and finish the job. Um, that might be a bit of legend, the whole being thrown off the temple. What we know for sure from multiple accounts, not Christian, is that James the Just in 62 AD was killed by stoning and perhaps by a club finishing the job off um, by him. We also know James the Just died forgiving the people killing him, which sounds a lot like his brother Jesus, right? He died on a cross saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This is a man who is Jesus-saturated. He has, he has fully taken on the, the role and ethics and ideas of Jesus and is now trying to transfer them to these other communities. Um, so James, it's argued, doesn't have much theology. I would argue the exact opposite. Um, James's theology is the exact same as Jesus' theology, which is that Jesus is the king, the kingdom is here, and a new community of people is being formed who will live in new ways that will transform the world. And so James' letter is full of what we call ethics or commands. In fact, in the book of James, you have more commands than in any other book in the entire Bible. Command and imperative, do this, don't do this over and over and over and over again. And it gets to the point where some people are like, lay off of me, okay? Um, When we read through the book of James, we'll find out he's an equal opportunity offender. Nobody reads James, I think, and comes off going, yeah, I've got it down. Every single time you can read through James, you can go, oh, I'm not doing that, and oh, I'm not doing that, and oh, I'm not doing that, and oh, I'm not doing that. And some people have argued, see, James doesn't get what Paul gets, which is we're forgiven by grace. But what's really happening is James understood what Jesus understood, which was you're forgiven by grace. God graciously and forgivingly brings you into this family and then says you now are to be a light on a hill. You now are to be salt to the earth. And this is how, as a community, not just individuals, but as a community, you should live in order to bring God's kingdom more on earth as it is in heaven. So James the Just writes a letter. Two, we're told, the 12 tribes in dispersion. Most likely he's writing to Jewish Christians. If you remember from the book of Acts, when the first person gets killed, martyred Stephen, everyone scatters. And they go to new cities and new towns. And so James seems to be writing to these people. As we read through the book of James, we'll find out they're facing injustice and oppression. Um, They're outcasts in their societies. I was recently in Europe. We spent a different night in a different city for nine nights in Europe. Um, You get a small sense of appreciation for what it might be like to live in a dispersion. To all of a sudden have to get up and run for your life and find yourself in a city where you don't know the roads, You don't know the people, you have no job, you have no money, and you don't know the language. What you do have is this really weird religion 
that no one knows about and they've heard false rumors about. And so you might be persecuted because of it. So James in Jerusalem writes this letter to the 12 tribes. Greetings, he says. So let's see, he jumps right into the gun. In other letters, you'll get a a prayer or some thanksgiving. James, though, he's getting right after it. The very first word, consider, count. There's our first imperative, okay? Here's our first command by James. Count. Now, I'm not a math guy. James has already lost me, okay? I'm not doing much counting, Um, He says, I need you to start to do some counting. I need you to do some arithmetic. He says this, count it all joy, my brothers. This is an inclusive term, brothers and sisters. He's talking to the whole body of Christ. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance or patience. Verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. There's a play on words there. It's the same word. The ESV doesn't do this very well. Let steadfastness or patience or endurance have its perfecting effect that you may be perfect. Have its maturing effect that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So here's what happens in James. And um, the order that the English Bibles that we have put it in is a little bit different than the Greek order, okay? But I'm going to go with how the, the Greek order phrases it. Brothers and sisters is fronted here, okay? He says, greeting brothers and sisters. He makes this rhetorical connection. My family in Christ. And then he gives, again, his first command. He says, count it all joy, there's a condition. When do you count it all joy? When you're facing trials. When you're facing troubles. When you're facing unpleasant things. When you're facing things that seem to want to topple you. And he opens it up when you meet and face trials of various kinds. All kinds of different trials. The, the Greek word here seems to suggest unexpected trials, things that you never thought you might deal with, or things that you were unprepared for. Consider it all joy when you meet trials. Now, if you're anything like me, this is not what you do when you meet trials. I have a section that I call all misery. And when something bad happens to me, I take it, I count it, and I put it in all misery. And my all joy section stays empty. And James says, no, I want you to cognitively do something for me. He says, when something bad happens to you, I want you to consider it all joy. Now, the, the words all joy here are very emphatic, and, and sometimes perhaps we miss this, like, like all joy. Um, he doesn't say consider it like, eh, this could turn out good. Consider this like something that theoretically in an alternate universe, you could see how maybe one day it'll turn around and be okay for you. All joy is like getting a Lamborghini and winning the lottery and having all of your problems disappear. I'm not talking about your bosses being killed. That's you. That's sin in your mind. Okay. That's all joy, right? Like, there's nothing about this that could be construed as anything but perfection. It's all joy. There's nothing but good things here. He says, consider your trials all joy. 
whatever kind they might be, your various trials. Now, we know from the rest of the letter um, that most likely the trials he's talking about, as we'll see, are economic injustices that his um, recipients are facing, or perhaps social injustices of certain sorts. Um, We also know that most likely included in these trials, and then later on he'll call them temptations, is the temptation to react to those trials in a negative way. Again, if you're like me, this is kind of natural, right? Not just something bad happens to us and we consider it bad. Something bad happens to us and we consider immediately a negative reaction to that bad thing happening. Um, James is as much nonviolent and peaceful as Jesus is. And he's going to, later on in his letter, urge his readers that when they encounter bad things, to counter them with good things. When you're hated, give love. When you're cursed, bless. Don't cause a scene. Don't be mean. Practice the enemy love that we were taught by the Lord Jesus. These seem to be the trials that he specifically has in mind for his recipients. Problems of injustice, and then the problem of how to react to that injustice. He says, count it all joy when you get these different trials. And then he gives us a reason, okay, in verse 3 and 4. He says, for because you know, you have cognitive awareness that the testing of your faith, that when you go through things like this, it produces something. Steadfastness is what my Bible calls it, ESV, steadfastness. It could be translated patience. It could be translated perseverance. It could be translated endurance. He says the testing of your faith produces endurance. This is true, I think, in almost every realm of life, right? The testing of someone's marriage produces in them a kind of perseverance, where the next time they hit a bump, they're able to be a little more sure about their marriage and and not make it as big of a deal. Or um, the, the first time you hit a roadblock at your work, right, and you're tested at your work and you get through it, you are given a sort of patience, a sort of inner strength to endure, to persevere. He says, consider it joy because it's going to produce steadfastness. It's going to produce heaven, um, or not heaven, it's going to produce um, heaven's um, perspective in you, um, that this is something that you can endure and persevere and get through. Um, he says, don't look at the trial, look through the trial into what it's going to create. Now, as we keep reading, he talks about what steadfastness does. Perseverance, verse 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We've already talked about the wordplay here in the Greek. Let endurance mature you so that you may be mature. Let perseverance perfect you so that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. Now, it's very important to notice here, watch this, endurance is not the goal of the testing of our faith, of our trials. Paul, or, or I'm sorry, James here doesn't say, count it all joy when you experience trials because trials produce endurance, steadfastness, and patience, and that's what we want. Instead, it seems endurance and patience 
and steadfastness are not ends, but they're means to an end. And that end, it would seem, is being complete or mature, lacking in nothing. We might say it like this, being able to continue to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in a faithful way. He says, know that when when bad things come your way, you should rejoice. You should rejoice in it. The scriptures are full of various passages that say similar things. Rejoice when you suffer. Count it all joy when you face trials, because those trials will make you a mature person. A person who's not tossed around by waves, which is a metaphor that James will use later in his book. James is known for being very blunt, for being very commanding, and just tell you what to do with these imperatives. And he's known for using these beautiful metaphors. We'll see throughout the book of James, he is a master at parable and metaphor. Again, much like this guy we may know called Jesus. Right? When Jesus spoke, he often used word images and image stories, parables, and metaphors. Being tossed around in the wind is one that James will use. And he'll say, someone who's been through a little bit of, of suffering, who's been through some bumps and some ups and some downs, gets to a point where they are mature, where they're complete, where they don't need anything else in order to continue to live out the life that they've been called to live out as followers of Jesus Christ. Notice the reason that we're not counting things all joy is because we get to go to heaven after we die. James doesn't say, count it all joy when life sucks right here and right now, because guess what? This life was not meant for you. All this stuff around us, it looks really cool to the rich people, but it's not that cool. We're going to get out of here. It's all going to burn. He says, no, count it joy, not because it's some afterlife thing. Count it joy because it's going to create in you a moral transformation, a character development where one day you'll be able to encounter things that you maybe perhaps couldn't have encountered in the past and you'll be able to stand strong. You, you won't lack anything. You'll be able to still be one of these kingdom people who follow Jesus in the face of whatever adversity stands in their way. If you know somebody like that, if you know somebody who it seems like no matter what comes their way, they are able to follow Jesus. They are able to, to, to faithfully focus on the goal. They're able to kind of get through no matter what hardship um, encounters them or, or seems to overwhelm them. You can be guaranteed that this probably is a result of a long period of time where they were following Christ and there was a bump. There was a trial. And they stuck it out. And it created in them a little bit of resolve, a little steel. And then the next bump, they stuck it out. And the next bump, they stuck it out. Or a community of people. Um, We'll we'll emphasize this community aspect over and over again. Um, One, because we're so hyper-individualist in America. Two, James is always using the second person plural pronoun, y'all. Okay, he's talking to communities. Jesus did not come to create individuals who follow him. He came to create communities who follow him together, which is great news because individuals are bad at following Jesus. Communities are much better, not great maybe, 
but better at following Jesus together because we can help each other when we fail, we can encourage one another, those kinds of things. And the goal, he says here, is to be a community. Whether we're in this city or that city, we're being persecuted, not being persecuted, where no matter what comes our way, we're able to stand our ground. We have this steely resolve, this confidence in God's goodness and God's sovereignty in the, in the transformation and deepening of our character that's taking place because of the trials um, that we are experiencing. The maturing does, it work, does its work in us. Um, now, there's a, a philosophy back at this time called Stoicism, and it, um, the idea with Stoicism, and some have compared Jesus or, or even maybe Paul to, to the Stoics, is that we should pretend like bad things aren't that bad. Um, Stoicism um, is all about, I mean, we use the phrase, right? That's a very stoic person. It's someone who doesn't really go up or down with emotions. They kind of have a calm face on no matter what really is happening. The philosophy behind Stoicism is very fatalistic. It's you can't affect what happens, so you might as well go with the flow, Right? Guess what? If a bad thing's happening to you, you can't change it. So you can either be upset about it and be miserable or just be like, well, that's just life. And if good things are happening to you, guess what? You can't change that as well. So instead of going crazy high about it and being like, oh, life's awesome. I'm such a good person. Just be calm about it. Be steadily headed. Be stoic. This is not the philosophy Jesus and James and Paul and God in the New Testament are after. A philosophy for where we go, bad things aren't really bad, and good things aren't really good, and we can't really affect how things happen in the world, so we'll just try to put on a brave face and sit there like a good school child, no matter what happens. The Bible presents a worldview of warfare where there's very bad things happening in the world that upset God and should upset us. And there are very good things in the world that make God extremely joyful and should make us extremely joyful. And, and when we're called to count trials joy, the call is not to be masochist. It's not a call to, to pretend that those bad things are actually good things. It's a call for perspective. It's a call for knowledge. It's a call to realize that even this bad thing in my life right now, as horrible as it might be, if I follow Jesus faithfully, will turn out into making me a more mature, more complete, less lacking follower of Christ able to go through even tougher situations if they were to come my way, able to help other people who might not be as far along as I am in my strength in Christ. It's the moral transformation, it's the discipleship, it's the character formation that makes James say, hey, be happy about it. Count it joy. Why? Not because it's a good thing. Not because better things could probably happen. Count it joy because you know in this world full of suffering, if you can be faithful, if with your community you can be faithful, you will come out on the other side a much stronger, more committed, 
follower of Christ. Not in this legalistic, obedient, kind of white-knuckled way, but in the kind of way that we talk about all the time, where when we obey God and we obey Christ, we find life. We find joy and happiness and peace and fulfillment. When Jesus gives us commands, when we're told in the Bible to repent, when we're given laws, these, these aren't the government giving us laws as arbitrary rulings passed down from people who don't know us. Jesus doesn't say forgive people because he wants us to be miserable and he knows that your neighbor kills kittens with their laser eyes and that if you try to forgive them every day, you'll be more and more miserable. Jesus says forgive people because he knows, guess what? You're really killing yourself. And you're taking yourself farther away from the God of forgiveness. The more unforgiving you are, the harder you're going to have relating to a God who is himself forgiveness. And that's not good for you. And the more unforgiving you are, that's not a punishment for that person. That's a prison that you've trapped yourself in of hate and self-loathing and this vicious cycle that goes down and down and down. Jesus says, I came to give life and life to the full. To be a mature Christian, able to follow Christ faithfully in any circumstances, means that we're able to be a person who finds life and joy and happiness and peace in Christ no matter what might be happening around us. And so I'm reading this passage this week about trials and counting it joy. And I'm watching the news this week. And I, you know, I'm, I'm very much a, I try to be a global citizen on purpose. And I try to put most American problems in context globally. You know, we've this mass shooting problem. You can diagnose it the way you want, right? But it happens a lot, and I think we'd all agree we'd like it to happen less. Um, we have this this problem with people getting killed. Um, we shouldn't be be getting killed. I had a friend over. We were talking about the craziness of the world just this week. And he left, and I picked up my phone, and while we were talking, cops in Dallas were being sniped. And I texted him, and I was like, oh my gosh. I mean, while we were talking about, could this week get crazier? An hour drive, a few hours drive from us. It was like hellfire raining down. In place in Dallas, I've been to. I've seen those buildings. I've, I can remember walking those streets. And so on, on one hand, I, I never want to forget, this type of stuff is an anomaly to the rest of the world. Not all of the world, but to a lot of the world, right? Um, to a lot of the world, a few people being shot and killed is tragic. It's always tragic, especially those families. But the real news would be if someone walked in with something strapped to their chest and blew up a market and killed 15, 20 people, right? And we've got it pretty comfortable and pretty safe and pretty easy. 
But even even me who who tries to go out of his way to be this global citizen and not put these things in in, in too straight of a perspective, as a as an American in Texas sitting there going, how much more could happen in a week? I mean, I'm not one for conspiracy theories, and I'm not one for overreacting, and I'm not one for all of those types of things. Um, but there's a point in me where I'm sitting there watching live footage of shootings in Dallas after a handful of unfortunate events during the week. And I'm wondering, is, is this the end of it? I mean, are we weeks away from this? Is this, is this what it's going to turn into? At a certain point, right? I mean, this is how empires, nations, this is how things turn out, right? People get so upset to a certain point and then it's just blood in the streets. I mean, I'm not going to try to overact here, but, but in the moment, I'm just like, what's going on? Evil, 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 evil. Response with more evil. And I'm not necessarily, because it's Sunday morning and I've been preaching for a few hours, up to date with the latest news. But um, I'm, I'm told and was told, and has some friends in Dallas, the Dallas Police Department... Um, is one of the more progressive in the United States uh, for transparency. Um, they uh, have an active uh, policy where they encourage police officers to narc on each other if they think they're racially profiling people, if they think they've done something that could be um, portrayed uh, as careless, if they think any kind of um, force was used that was unnecessary. Um, they actively shame and punish those police officers. Um, while this protest was happening, it was happening around lots of different cities, um, the Dallas Police Department was tweeting pictures of it. And, you know, I'm looking at all this kind of after the fact, and I'm kind of like, it doesn't seem right for a police department to be tweeting. Like, that seems like that could make it more of a big deal. And then I'm coming to find out, no, they're tweeting pictures of it because they're participating. And, and almost all the, the protesters there who were protesting very peacefully, um, report after report after report, is that these cops were taking pictures with them, helped organize it, were protecting them. And, and, and I think we know by now that the people who, who decided to go on this killing spree were in no way affiliated with these protests. And, and I get reports that, that these, these police officers who were killed, um, while they're being shot at, which I guess in the moment no one knows who that's being shot at, I guess, but, but are, are actually protecting the protesters, like helping them get to cover while they're trying to figure out why their partner's dead 10 feet down the road and when the next bullet is coming for them. And, and, and my best prayer was that maybe the Dallas situation would be a backfire of evil. Where sometimes, where sometimes evil overplays its hand. And, and I think that happens sometimes in our world. And God pounces on that and uses that powerfully. Evil overplays its hand and it turns into this beacon of hope for the world. Look at the, look at the city where even police officers were mourning all the evil and justice that was going on in the world. 
and then were attacked for it, even still while protecting the people protesting, who theoretically could be, I mean, they were out there because of them. My only prayer is maybe the whole world looks at that and can see how wrong that is on every angle. How wrong it is that those things happened earlier in the week. How wrong it is that, that, that these peaceful protests are turning into violent things. How wrong it is um, to generalize not only a race, but also a, a vocation. That maybe this one example could finally drill down to the minds of some sane human beings that we are one group of people. I don't care what your job is, and I don't care what your color is, but we're all created by God. We're all loved by Him. I read a New York Times article yesterday night, and it kind of got at what I was thinking, which was, again, I, I rarely get as affected by these things as, as maybe some do. I mean, it, it hurts me and pains me. But I think it was like the cascade, right? It was just the, oh my gosh, every day, after every day, after every day, after a four-hour conversation about could it get crazier, and then while we were having the conversation, it was getting crazier. And the, there's a, a line in the New York Times article that said, um, there's only so much a nation can take at one point. And that's kind of how I had felt. So yeah, there's so much, only so much tragedy that I can like, comprehend at one point. There's only so many different videos of horrific injustices that I can watch within a week's period of time, within a month's period of time, within a year's period of time. And then I open up James. Because the Spirit wants to speak to us through James this morning. And James goes, these trials, these horrific things that happen in the world, are not good things. They're not joyful things. They're not to be rejoiced in. They're things to be fought against, not violently, but fought against, stood up against, the things to die standing up against, to give up your life, to try to get these things out of the world. But they're things that, if you look at them correctly and can continue to have a Christ-like focus through them, might be able to go in a joy column. Because evil might have overplayed its hand as it often does in history when it kills Christians. If it kills Christians, there's less of them. We're winning. But the Christians read James and they go, no, this is going to make us more Christ-like. And all of a sudden, what they thought was this victory actually created a community of people more laser-focused on following Christ, on loving like he taught them to love on forgiving like he taught them to forgive, on even pursuing their enemies with kindness and prayers and blessings the way that Jesus taught them to do so, the way that James modeled when he died. And so this morning, we're living in a nation that I think um, is still reeling from years of actions and a week's worth of actions and I know that in our own hearts, individually, we've got trials and temptations. We've got, we've got obstacles that we feel like we'll never overcome. 
that can never be good. And James's first but not last lesson to us is to count it joy. Because it's going to create in you a perseverance. And if you let that perseverance do what it's supposed to do, if you don't get in the way of it, if you have a community that encourages it and fosters it, you'll come out on the other end as someone more in touch with the life of Christ than you ever possibly could have imagined. Would you pray with me?